Welcome to First Fuel, a podcast on the role of energy efficiency, energy management and demand response in the energy transition taking place in the United Kingdom and around the world. I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council. I'm delighted to be joined for this episode by Nick Eyre. Nick is Director at Centre for Research into Energy Demand Solutions, or CREDS, at the University of Oxford. Welcome, Nick. Thank you. It's nice to be here, Luke. And we've just enjoyed an absolutely delightful lunch at a, a local pub. Thanks for the uh, selection, a really excellent uh, vegetarian uh, menu that uh, we all partook of. Um, and it was a fascinating conversation and I uh, prevailed upon you to uh, wander back to your your office uh, here at the University of Oxford and, and have a bit of a chinwag because there's a bit to talk about in United Kingdom energy policy um, and just, I guess, the broader role of energy efficiency uh, in our journey to net zero, which is uh, is one of your passions. Um, maybe if we uh, start by you giving me a sense of, of what your job is and what your role is here at CREDS at the University of Oxford. Okay, so CREDS is a major investment by UK Research and Innovation, which is the organisation that funds university research in the UK. We're, we call the, the hub investment for research on energy demand which means we do some research we're a research center but we also act as 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 the hub than the knowledge exchange for other people in universities doing research in in in, in the same broad area gives us a role in talking to industry to policymakers, to to other stakeholders as well um so I, i'm director that means i'm uh, meant to be in charge of the overall uh, outfit i am in charge of the overall <laughs> outfit i probably should say but we're 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 a university research organisation spanning more than twenty universities. So I've got lots of colleagues who are excellent researchers, world leading researchers in many cases in 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 their own fields, working in 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 different places. So it's not me telling them what to do. It's us all working together to try to address these questions of how energy demand needs to change, and particularly in the context of the uh, the energy transition. That's the way we thought we're thinking about it when we put in the research proposal in 2018 but of course lots of things have happened since then that we've had to take on board uh, covid what's been the effect of covid on energy use and more recently the huge rise in in, in prices particularly gas prices in europe which is having a, a profound effect on the way people think about energy yeah well, I, I wanted to get into that actually because um as you know i've i've just come from from germany um spent some time in brussels and also in paris talking to the international energy agency and i guess the the, the seismic impact of uh, russian aggression in ukraine um obviously incredible human toll but also uh you know huge implications for energy security for for global energy markets um, it's having an impact here in the UK. How's it? How's it changed? You know the market dynamics in the UK and also the uh, the political conversation. Yeah, I think there's two major factors at work. One is, as you said, potentially an energy security crisis. I don't think it's actually an energy security crisis yet. And the UK only gets 5% of its gas from Russia. But of course, other people in Western Europe, other countries in Western Europe get a far higher proportion and we're part of a European gas market. And gas is still flowing from Russia to, to Europe. And yet, of course, at any, at any time that, that could stop and and generate uh, a real energy security crisis. The, the short-term issues, the issues we're already seeing, are, are about about prices. Mm. 
um, gas in the UK is the dominant fuel um, for well for, for all sorts of heating, but particularly for household heating. Uh, the price has already doubled. It looks as in in October like it'll take another fifty percent increase. Mm-hmm. That means the average bill that UK households will be paying for gas and electricity from October will be something like £3,000 a year. That's what, 6000 Australian dollars or 5000 yeah. Around that, yeah. Um, that's, that's a huge amount, and, and, and it's, it, it, it's already had uh, impacts. We've already seen government thinking about how it's going to um, address that primarily actually through giving people money through reducing local tax bills and through direct increases in payment to, to pension households in particular to households on benefits and we all know in the energy efficiency community that that's not the optimal solution the optimal solution is is to set about reducing uh, energy bills and of course we should do that and we should have been doing it more than we, more than we have for the last 10 years and then we'd be in in a better position but in the short term we have to be honest and say energy efficiency improvement's not going to change a lot by the time that next winter starts here in 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 October November when a lot of low income households are going to be desperately hard hard hit by this and 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 fuel poverty which is a huge issue in the UK is going to be hugely ex- exacerbated so that's raised this as a a political issue i guess the the bright side of it for us is that there's more interest in energy efficiency. I'm getting more phone calls from journalists about mm. how to save energy than I did when it was solely about carbon saving. No, as as are we. I suppose that's the interesting thing, and it's uh, fascinating here. There's a similar dynamic in the policy conversation um, because uh, in a, in an Australian context, as advocates, I think we've been very careful, us and all the partners that we work in, in saying, look, you know, energy efficiency absolutely crucial, um, but it's it's probably it's not a lever that you can pull and then you know uh, results pop out the other side within two or three minutes. This is kind of a, a long term strategy, and um, you know we can reflect on some of the uh, the inaction of the past, which would have uh, reduced vulnerability to these sorts of shocks. Um, but you know, you, there's no point sort of spending too much time dwelling on that it's kind of like bearing in mind these different time horizons right and you know there's a there's a reasonable argument i think you can make that some sort of you know emergency support for for householders and and in you know in some cases for business you know to get us through this immediate crisis sort of makes a little bit of sense certainly makes some sense in terms of uh you know reducing the impact on the most vulnerable in the community but simultaneously you need to be thinking about what's the medium and long-term strategy right and uh, i suppose the conversations we've been having is you know while you have this emergency response let's make sure we're starting to build the momentum to unlock the the opportunity for energy efficiency to really reduce vulnerability of the whole economy to these sorts of shocks but also reduce the pressure on on individuals households and and businesses uh, that are going to be dealing let's face it for elevated energy prices for some time to come nick yeah that's right um uh, the, the headline finding that we've got from from Cred's recent work is that the uh, the scope for reducing energy use in the UK by 2050 is is about 50%. We we could halve energy demand uh, 
larger amount in transport, less in industry, about about that in, 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 in buildings. Mm. Um, and we know what the technical solutions are about improving building fabric and, and shifting to a much higher efficiency and, and, and zero carbon systems, no, no, notably heat pumps. Um, the task is simply to, to do that now. Uh, the um, And that's not a trivial problem, but um, we've done better in, in, in the UK in the past than we're doing at the moment. In the late sort of 2008 to 2012 period, we were probably putting in over a million major pieces of insulation into UK homes each year. It's now something like a tenth of that, and that's that's due to policy change. It's due to it's due to failed policy. So we sort of know how to do it. There are things we don't know so well how to do deep retrofits of, of, of buildings to get them to very low energy uh, use is is more difficult and there's a debate about how many buildings it's sensible to treat in that way um, and we don't we, we've little experience in the UK of um, mass markets for heat pumps though there is more in in, in some other European countries uh, both in northern Europe for uh, ground source heat pumps and and in southern Europe for, for for air source heat pumps so there's things to learn from but we need to to get on and do it so one of the things that um, has crossed our desks in Australia is the uh, the heat and building strategy. I'm, tr- I'm trying to think that came out last year. Is that correct? Yeah, that came out in 2021, yeah. And I, I guess, you know, an attempt to start to unpack some of the, the key issues um, in, in terms of how you decarbonise the building stock. But in a, in a European context, a lot of that means decarbonising heat load, right? How good a fist do you think uh, the government made of sort of grappling with those issues and, and charting a pathway forward? So I think the analysis in the heat and building strategy is, is quite good. The analysis broadly says, as you said, that heat is the the, the crucial issue in, in in building energy use. It's probably worth emphasising that for for a, a, an Australian audience in in, in particular that. Uh, in the residential sector, cooling is not a major issue in the UK. Over, over 60% of our energy is going go, going into space heating and, and then water heating is the next yep. biggest. And they tend to become from the same source, uh, a hydronic uh, heating system. Uh, essentially, a boiler provides both uh, the space heating and, uh, and the hot water. So this is a huge issue um, in the UK and in other Northern European countries with, 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 with similar energy systems um the analysis shows there's really three broad approaches you can take technically um you can um implement household scale uh, heat pumps moving from gas to electricity uh, efficiency gain of a factor of three or four so very significant you could um, move to hydrogen-based systems, though clearly we haven't got the hydrogen at scale uh, to do that. That would allow you to keep something like an existing boiler. It would have to burn hydrogen rather than methane, so it would be a bit different. And then the other thing that is a possibility is to expand the use of district-scale um, systems powered by either heat pumps or waste heat or biomass or a range of things that you could power, power district heating systems from. They're quite common in... Many Central European European countries and Northern European countries, less so in the UK, only about 1% of the stock is connected uh, to district heating systems. I think the, 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 the feeling now is that, that heat pumps are going to be the, the dominant way forward. Maybe not everywhere. There may be some scope for hydrogen, 
for example, in, in, in areas where you've got an industrial process that is using hydrogen and you've got housing stock nearby. But in most of the um, urban, suburban housing stock, we're probably going to be looking at putting in heat pumps. The heat and building strategy has a really ambitious target of uh, 600,000 heat pump installations per year by 2028. Um I would really like to see that delivered. Uh, I don't see at the moment that it is going to be delivered because I don't see the policy mechanisms to to achieve that. Uh, that uh, a heat pump is more expensive than, than a gas boiler by quite a big margin. Gas boilers are relatively cheap uh, in, in 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 Northern Europe. And um, although you get a, a factor of three efficiency improvement, because electricity costs more than three times more than gas historically, and still actually, even with the gas price increase, then you don't get a running cost benefit either. So your capital costs are, your operational cost is probably about the same. What What's the driver for households to do this? So there's... There are now uh, support mechanisms, so there's a, a, a grant system, about £5,000 to, to install uh, an air source heat pump. We'll, we'll see how much difference that makes. Um, but 600000 a year, that's something like half the, the, the heating system installations going in, 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 in a year. To get that scale of change in six years, most of your audience will realise what a big challenge that is. It is a big challenge. Uh, and uh, the last time I looked at this, while there were some uh, grant programmes to support the rollout of heat pumps in the UK, pretty modest, like, you know, in terms of just the number of heat pump installations yeah. that they're that they're supporting. So there's a bit of a, I suppose, a disconnect in terms of the ambition laid out in that strategy and the actual policy on the ground to roll it out, Nick. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that would be most people's analysis. That's certainly my view. And of course, it, when you're talking about scale on that change, you're talking about a systemic change. So you're not only talking about making change, changing the economics, you're talking about changing the whole the whole of the supply chain. So there's, there's yeah. I think, 80,000 people employed in in fitting and and maintaining gas boilers we're going to have to turn that over in in 15 or 20 years to 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 people who are are fitting and maintaining a completely different technology one based on on uh, electricity and refrigerants and 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 not gas so that in itself is a challenge that has to run alongside convincing the householders that to, to, to change the sort of, uh, of of investment and of course ensuring that electricity is 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 available so this will cause a very significant increase in electricity demand and particularly peak electricity demand which has got implications both for power generation and for the distribution networks uh, and of course it in, implies the running down of gas use and essentially making gas networks, uh, well, uh, it's an existential threat to, to that part of the gas industry. What you're suggesting is that there's a there's a target, you know, there's some reasonable thinking at a high level in terms of what the pathways might be, but, you know, whether you're talking about system impacts, uh, supply chains, 
the kind of the skills uplift around heat pumps. Like there's not really those building blocks, and they are essential building blocks to drive the kind of transformation at the at the, at the scale to make sure that it all it all sort of happens with the rapidity which is um, is being targeted. But then it it all works, right? It all it all comes together. Um, well, it's interesting because I mentioned I've just come from Germany and and they've just put in a target. It's not that dissimilar, actually. It's you know five hundred thousand heat pump installations a year, but they're targeting twenty twenty four. Um, they're coming off uh, a basis, I understand, of sort of putting in you know low hundred thousand yeah. heat pumps a year. Um, you're an observer of you know European policy, though your focus is on the UK. Do you think the Germans are in in any better position to uh, translate that aspiration into action? Uh, I suspect a little better. They're starting from a higher base of, of heat pump installations. Uh, the UK, from memory, is something like thirty thousand a year at the moment. So there's there's more of an industry in Germany. Um, the the skills in general in um, installation of heating systems and, and, and building repair and maintenance are, are higher in Germany. It's, it, it, it's a set of trades with with more social status than in the UK and, and higher skills. I mean, in, in, in the UK, yeah, you need, you need training and qualifications to be a gas installer, but you don't need training and qualifications to call yourself a builder. You can just be a builder um, and... We know that that isn't going to work in the long term. If we're moving towards high-performance buildings, then we're going to have people... We need people with the skills to uh, install and um, maintain equipment that will deliver high-performance buildings. So we're some way off that, and that uh, that has ramifications not just for the, uh, the immediate skills of the immediate installers, but for the way we think about uh, education and training in, in, in the UK more, more generally and um, what regard we have for people who do these sorts of jobs. So just going back to the strategy for a moment, um, and again, I'll prevail upon your memory, which hopefully is better than mine, but my recollection is that there was these very par- various pathways uh, laid out and there was sort of a a time frame for kind of deciding which pathway the UK was going to take, right? Can you remind me of the year that, you know, was mooted? So I, I think it's next year that there's meant to be more clarity on, on which areas will go down, um, which, which route. Um, as I said, I think that there's still quite a powerful lobby in the gas industry for hydrogen, yeah. probably in the first instance, what so-called blue hydrogen, i.e., Turning the methane we've already got into uh, in, in, into hydrogen, um, using carbon capture and storage to uh, to put the CO two underground in, in the UK. That would principally be in the disused um, oil and gas wells uh, in, in the North Sea. There's actually capacity uh, to do that, but clearly the hydrogen you get out of doing that is going to be more expensive than the methane that goes into the process. And at the moment. With this background of, of gas prices having tripled, it doesn't look like a, 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 a great option. So I think there's probably less support for that than there used to be. Hence the, the, the emphasis to some extent on district heating, where people are beginning to put in new district heating systems in, in, in some urban areas, but predominantly heat pumps. Um, the policy isn't there to deliver that at the moment. The policy that was floated in, in, in a document that accompanied the heat and building strategy was uh, described as a market-based instrument to support uh, the delivery of heat pumps. There was no real explanation of what that meant. 
Um, but reading the runes between the lines, I think what it means is something like an obligation on the people who uh, either make or install heating systems based very much along the sort of approach that we're using to the insta- to the um, to to transforming the vehicle market so there's a zero emissions mandate which essentially requires people are selling cars in the UK to increase their, their, the share of electric vehicles each year until we get to, to 100%. With a clear end date, right? With a clear end date, yeah. So that's what you would, I think, do, and you could see that working. I I think it's harder in, in heating because you're not dealing with a few major international manufacturers in the way you are in, 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 in vehicles. Um, but... It, it, it could work. The implications, when you think it through, are that the manufacturers or installers or whoever had the obligation would have to subsidise, at least in the short term, subsidise heat, their heat pump sales, presumably by increasing the price of gas boilers as well. And I suspect our government doesn't really want to say in public what we want to do is effectively put a levy on gas boilers to support heat pumps because that wouldn't that that wouldn't play too well in in the mass media nor indeed with many consumers. It's interesting in an Australian context because um, I think that uh, uh, we're just in a much better position in terms of the fundamental economics. Um, when it comes to these sorts of upgrades, there's plenty of studies. Our friends at our friends at Renew have been leading the charge on this um, to kind of you know do the um, the apples to apples comparison on on two things: a, a new build, all electric home versus a, a, a home that has gas appliances and is connected to the gas network. And that's just, you know, it's not even a conversation. That's very, very straightforward. Obviously, when you're doing upgrades, um, different homes, it's starting in different places. Um, but especially when you factor in the opportunity to uh, remove the gas connection charge altogether, it is in most parts of the country um, and for most building types already uh, an economically sensible decision to move towards all electric existing buildings and that's got to do with the relative cost of gas and electricity that's got to do with the different sort of technology mix um in these in the in an australian context um and it's also got to do with you know the predominance of solar in many homes in in australia which you know there's, there's just a different level of solar penetration a different opportunity around that in the uk right in the uk of course we wouldn't expect solar to be our, our predominant renewable resource it's likely to be offshore wind offshore wind at the moment is is a, well, a lot cheaper than it was and a lot cheaper than most people expected but still uh, significantly more expensive uh, than than solar in in countries that have got high, high insulation levels so it's hard to see our renewables costs getting as low as your renewables costs um, and of course historically we've had relatively cheap gas though I mean what's changed is that that gas cost at least in the short term has, has trebled um, it's now 10 pence a, a kilowatt hour or it would expect it to be that, that, that sort of level at the moment the electricity price is still basically coupled to the gas price because the marginal generator is gas-fired, so we're seeing electricity prices go up as well, so it doesn't doesn't really help that. But in the long term, we would expect 
electricity prices to decouple from from gas prices electricity to go on getting cheaper as the the technology improves uh, and gas prices well who knows you know one can imagine gas becoming relatively cheap again particularly if there are aggressive efforts to, to get out of it and the, the the supply countries want want have have, have want to go on making sales but i think what the last uh, year has taught us is we certainly can't rely on that hey team uh i am very excited to have a co-host for this week's ad read the energy efficiency council zone holly taylor holly great to have you with us very happy to be here for an ad read so uh holly uh, what exciting thing from the world of the energy efficiency council would you like to tell our audience about today well, we are fast approaching the end of the financial year, which means for anybody that has purchased, installed, and indeed is using new assets, particularly those that are saving energy, we would encourage you to use the Commonwealth Government's temporary full expensing measure, which is a tax depreciation incentive. This tax incentive is available until 30 June 2023, which means assets purchased, installed and ready for use by 30 June 2023 are eligible for a full instant asset write-off. Hey, Holly, uh, if only there was a guide that would uh, step businesses through how to build a business what? case. Yeah. Crazy talk. <laughs> is there a guide? There is. Who would have thought? Amazing. <laughs> that guide, the tax incentives guide, is available at energybriefing.org.au forward slash tax dash incentives dash guide. This is a fabulous resource that Holly and the team have pulled together over the last 12 months. And as we uh, work our way through uh, this energy apocalypse, uh, geez, I'm glad they did because because it, it could really help businesses to, to, to build the case for investments in, in big equipment upgrades that could really cut their gas and electricity use. It's really uh, important to note that the temporary full expensing tax incentive is available for assets of any value, and indeed it's available to 99% of Australian businesses. So uh, if you're sitting on the couch, get up. Go purchase something that's going to save you a lot of money, both in terms of energy efficiency savings, but also in terms of tax. The opportunity is nigh. Hey, you heard it here first, team. Uh, Holly Taylor says get off your ass and download that tax incentives guide. I didn't say get off your ass and download the tax incentives guide. Get off your ass, download the tax incentives <laughs> guide, and then go and invest in an energy upgrade and save your business bucket loads of money. Thanks, Holly. Thanks for being with us. Uh, now, back to the show. All right, Nick. Well, that's uh, almost a, a perfect segue, I suppose, because we've been talking a little bit about the supply side dynamics and how crucial they are and, you know, the interaction between the supply side and the demand side for that broader transition to net zero, which is something you've been turning your mind to. One of the reasons why I was so keen to get on the motorway down to Oxford and catch up with you was a, was a paper you released just a few uh, months ago um, with your colleague Jan Rose now, who was also uh, at the pub with us. Uh, a fa- fascinating conversation. And, and we spent a, a bit of time talking about this paper, Reinventing Energy Efficiency for Net Zero, which um, I think you described as a bit of provocation for the energy efficiency advocates uh, of, of uh, the UK and I guess, you know, more broadly um, to just... You know, not necessarily suggesting that energy efficiency has no value, but maybe thinking about how we frame it and the kind of the challenges and opportunities that energy efficiency has to play its role in this journey to net zero. Do you want to just 
talk a bit about your motivation for writing that paper with Jan and uh, and uh, some of the conclusions that you came to. Yeah, I think the motivation was to stop um, to stop flabby thinking, really, to stop um, us just saying energy efficiency is the first fuel. That's all you need to know. All you, all we need to do is energy efficiency. It can't be true in an in a net zero world. And so the, the fundamental point is that energy efficiency improvement of, of fossil fuel technologies, improving the efficiency with which we use fossil fuels, doesn't have a future. It's very it's it's a very straightforward. Important in the next decade, of course. Yeah, of course it's, it is. But we need what's the pathway to net zero and how long can we go on relying on those technologies that improve the efficiency of, of fossil fuels? Yeah, for for the next decade, yeah. For the decade afterwards, harder to see. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting in a city where the city council has got a, a target of net zero by 2040. That's pretty optimistic. Yep. Um, but actually... If our urban areas that don't have major manufacturing can't go net zero by 2040, then our country is not going to go net zero by 2050. So that's the sort of time scales. It means that the next vehicle purchase, the next boiler upgrade, if not the, the next one, the one after that, certainly has to be zero carbon. So your condensing boiler, your highly efficient petrol vehicle, sounds like a good idea now, is a good idea now. Um but the point we were making is that it's not, not a good idea in the long term and our policies are going to have to reflect that. So we're going to have to stop thinking about efficient gas boilers and start thinking about moving to heat pumps and actually moving to energy efficient heat pumps, not any old heat pump. Yep. Ditto for electric vehicles. There's very little emphasis at the moment on how energy efficient an electric vehicle is. People think, well, it's sort of going to be zero carbon, so that's fine. But we're going to find it very hard to decarbonise the energy system if we don't reduce the amount of energy we use. If we're going to a largely electric system, um, in in this country, less than 20% of our energy currently comes from, from, from electricity. So we're going to get rid of the other 80% and get that from electricity or hydrogen produced from electricity. That is a huge load, new load on the electricity system. And many estimates say we might have to treble our electricity generation to, to achieve that. That's quite tough. The study I mentioned uh, that we've done that shows you could halve energy demand, we still double electricity demand. So uh, that seems to us to be the, uh, the the lower limit that we should be aiming for, only doubling electricity demand. So making those electricity technologies really efficient is going to be highly important. I think, you know, there's going to be different types of fuel switching in different parts of the economy, but that idea of the quality of electrification is the, the word that uh, we're uh, increasingly using in the in the context of Australia. Because you, yes, there's a strong case to electrify everything that makes sense. In many cases, there's technologies that are available that can that can swap in uh, for a, a fossil fuel alternative, um, but. The technologies you choose and their characteristics, um, both in terms of their efficiency but also their flexibility, which is another important point that you made in terms of the the role that those electric technologies can play in stabilising a high penetration renewable energy system. Noting those systems are going to have different characteristics 
around the world and so the type of flexibility that you're valuing in particular systems is going to going to shift obviously in australia it's all about managing you know the solar load on the system in the middle of the day and the absence of it you know between 6 and 9 p.m it's a different set of systems if you're largely relying on wind for your renewables but there's still you know some there's still issues to grapple with right yeah uh, very different issues for we um we already have a summer peak a, a winter peaked electricity system we're going to have an even more winter peaked electricity system by electrifying heat actually wind is reasonably well correlated with our expected demand on 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 a seasonal basis it's windier in the uk in 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 winter than it is in 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 summer so that's that's helpful um but the the characteristic variability of wind is very different from the characteristic variability of solar solar is basically a diurnal cycle a bit of variation due to how cloudy it is but i know it, there's never any clouds in australia so, that, <laughs> so that, that's not an issue you need to worry about um but but wind we do go through these wind droughts of a, a week or so <clears throat> even even in 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 the windy seasons and so um the the storage problems that we're envisaging are maybe not so much or the flexibility problems are maybe not so much diurnal which can be addressed through um batteries and, and and demand response, but um, periods of a week or more, and that that probably does mean looking at different storage technologies with different characteristics. So, yeah, it all points to whilst the big challenge of of, of a net zero system is the same everywhere, that the, that the characteristics of, of demand and weather in different places just means that the solutions are going to have to vary across countries. So, Nick. Um it's a fascinating paper. It's actually a short paper that I, that I, you know, we'll have it in the show notes. I, I recommend folk go and have a have a read of it because it's really thought provoking. Um, one of the one of the ideas that, um, you know, it wasn't that it was completely new to me, but it sort of focused my mind in a way that I hadn't hadn't really done before. Was you know that we get into these conversations, I suppose, um, sometimes debates about the relative role of electrification and hydrogen, and uh, of course. Uh, you know, hydrogen uh, is necessarily um, a more complicated way of meeting an energy services need than direct electrification. Um, however, the you know, in some cases, it's you know, it's likely to be necessary, and you know, we're we're, we're probably focused in an Australian context, at least from the Energy Efficiency Council's perspective, on the particular niches in, in industry and the like, where hydrogen is going to have to have an absolutely crucial role. The point you make in your paper was, well, yes, you know, hydrogen is going to have some sort of role. You know, the, the policy conversation is continuing about what that role is. But regardless, the efficient use of hydrogen, given the complexity and the relatively, relative expense, not just in production, but also in transport of hydrogen, um, it's going to be crucial to make sure we're using it as efficiently as possible. Do you want to just speak to that for a moment? Yeah, the the efficient use of any fuel is important, but as I, as I said, we're we're moving away from worrying about uh, efficient use of, of fossil fuels over the next decade or so to efficient use of, of whatever we're using, which primarily are electricity, but but also also hydrogen. Yep. So. Where are we going to be using hydrogen? Well, at least in some industrial processes, uh, in marine, uh, in, 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 in aviation, maybe, maybe not directly as hydrogen there, but in some sort of fuel that's manufactured from, from hydrogen. It's going to be expensive whether we produce it from methane with carbon capture and storage or, uh, 
as I think we will do in the longer term from 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 electricity and of course it's one of the ways of dealing with that variability of electricity that you mentioned Luke using that excess uh, generation at times to to make hydrogen looks looks like a sensible way, way forward but the assumption that if you wanted heat from hydrogen you would just burn it in a boiler seems to me to be um, a very bad assumption. Um, what, why would you want to use it inefficiently if you can use it efficiently? So one of the things that I think needs more work in, 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 in the UK is to the extent that we will need other fuels to deal with these periods where there's a shortage of, of, of renewable energy. And if we're using hydrogen then, do you really want to burn it in a boiler or do you want to burn it in a, a CHP system, in, in a district heating system or, or, or in a fuel cell uh, in a way that gets you more more heat and maybe and some electricity out of, of that hydrogen? The other use of hydrogen that's likely to be is in, is in balancing the electricity system from, from hydrogen storage for these sort of week to two-week sort of periods where we've got a, a shortage of renewables directly so we're using you know, renewables indirectly by turning it into hydrogen when there's a, an excess and i don't think these two worlds of, th- of thinking about hydrogen for storage in the power system and thinking about hydrogen in other end uses have really been joined up properly yet and i think one of the things that's actually one of the roles that energy efficiency thinking can can help with i think well it's one of the key conclusions of your paper really is that we need to think it's a plea for systems thinking yeah really it's sort of thinking about how all these different pieces of the puzzle fit together and and ultimately that's something that energy efficiency folk i think are predisposed to doing is to thinking about how all those different pieces of the puzzle fit together it's certainly something that we spend a lot of time with at the energy efficiency council i think you're right that energy efficiency folk are more likely to think from a systems perspective but I don't think we always do. As somebody who's worked in energy efficiency in buildings, it's pretty easy to forget about energy efficiency in, in, in transport. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't do that. We need to think about them together. I mean, a very good example, which you and I were talking about as, as we walked over here, about different types of cities and, and the fact that European cities are generally more compact than 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 Australian cities. So that probably gives you more roof area in Australian buildings, more scope to to generate solar energy. Mm -hmm. But I suspect you pay for that in the efficiency of your overall transportation system because it makes you more reliant on on private vehicles, which are less efficient. And so public transportation is part of systems thinking about, about energy efficiency. I think the overall analysis is that compact cities are more efficient overall um, but it's not a trivial relationship because there are these different the different factors in there and of course yet yeah, we can't change how compact a city is very quickly either so uh, we it, it's the same problem we talked about earlier of uh, saying we're starting off from the wrong place um, may make us feel good but doesn't really help policy makers very much <laughs> I think that I think it's a point well made, and it sort of goes to something else we were talking about earlier, which is around you know, like 
yes, energy efficiency, but also materials efficiency, right? Like if you, if you, you know, to the degree that we're fixing buildings and we use the materials that we're um, fixing the buildings with in an, in an efficient way. Um, lightweighting is a term that came up regularly in uh, my conversations in, in Germany. Um, and that was the industrial decarbonisation people talking about how they can just produce less of a thing to deliver a service or to deli- de- deliver a product. And, uh, it, it goes back to that sort of core insight really that if, if we don't have to produce something and we can meet a societal need with, with less stuff, then inherently that's going to be a more efficient outcome, right? Yeah. And, and it is the major a cross cut between um, thinking about energy use in buildings and thinking about energy use in industry as we move to buildings that are more efficient in use then the the relative importance of the embedded energy in the building construction uh, increases and that's even truer for carbon because construction energy use is dominated by um, by steel and, and by cement and these are two of the hardest sectors to decarbonize so the carbon impacts of the construction of buildings are going to be large compared to the carbon impacts of energy in use when we've electrified buildings and got zero carbon um, electricity so it's going to change that balance quite a lot and then yeah, how much cement and how much steel go into the building becomes an important factor along with, of course, decarbonising those sectors. All right, uh, Nick, uh, we're out of time. You've been incredibly generous with your time over lunch and, and now this afternoon. It's been an absolute pleasure catching up and, and picking your, your brains. Um, I think that um, I'm coming to the end of my, my trip around Europe and, and now the UK. Um, it's, it's underlined to me that there are unique opportunities and challenges in uh, every nation that I've been lucky enough to to journey through um, around energy management and energy efficiency. But um, there's a common cause and there's also a lot of work that we can do together um, to ensure that uh, we're moving through this transition as quickly as possible. And we're just not working in silos because there's a lot of lessons that can be shared. So um, excited to connect with you, um, excited to connect with creds and do what I can to kind of build some connective tissue uh, between our two nations in this important area of making sure that energy efficiency is doing its bit uh, as we uh, transition to net zero. Great. Yeah, we'll definitely go on competing as nations in, so, <laughs> in some areas, no, notably cricket, um, but we don't have to in this area. Yeah. Well, you know, the ashes of energy efficiency. Let's see what we can do, <laughs> Nick. All right. Well, uh, that wraps up this episode of First Fuel. If you have comments, you can find us on Twitter. You'll find the Centre for Research into Energy Demand Solutions at creds underscore UK. And my handle is at Luke Menzel. And to keep up to date on the latest in energy efficiency, energy management and demand response, you can find the Energy Efficiency Council at ec.org.au. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to First Fuel in your podcast app of choice. And to learn more about the show, you can visit ec.org.au forward slash podcasts but for now it's goodbye from us and we'll catch you soon